Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Kidnor, founder of leading Australian podcast agency, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome back to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. When this week's guest, Skylar Mapes, visited her now husband's parents in his hometown of Lurcastella, Calabria, she also met their orchard of olive trees. While not as personable, they were just as intimidating. Upon returning to Texas, Skylar couldn't forget the taste Calabria had left, so she decided not to leave it and relocate to Italy. In 2017, Exal Olive Oil was born, a direct-to-consumer olive oil brand made with love. It's good, really good. It's one of Oprah's favourite things, and soon to be yours, peers. In this intimate conversation, Skylar shares the way food and culture create connection, why becoming untethered to our past leads to quarter-life crises, and how to navigate starting a business in a space you're unfamiliar with. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these amazing millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, welcome Skylar. Skylar, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. You know, you and I recently connected over LinkedIn and when I looked into you and all of the amazing work that you're doing and the food and the direct-to-consumer space, I knew I had to have you come on the show, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Amazing. Look, so for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So my name is Skylar Mapes. I'm the co-founder of Exile Olive Oil, a Southern Italian olive oil brand that I founded with my husband, Giuseppe Morisani, a little over three years ago. We actually just wrapped up our, we wrapped up our fourth harvest um, in December of 2020. And we are olive oil producers. We are olive oil <laughs> slingers. We sell olive oil. We have, we're marketers. Um, we're farmers. 
we're importers, we're exporters, we do it all. I mean, we're direct to consumer. So when you're direct to consumer, you tend to consolidate about four different, five different people's jobs. In our case, it's like seven. Because the olive oil industry, especially when you're dealing with um, two different continents, there's just a lot of different people involved. And yeah, we sell our oils direct to consumer in the U.S. and we ship nationwide. And our U.S. base is in beautiful Austin, Texas, which we are missing very much. When we're in Italy, we're based in La Castella, Calabria, which is in the ball of the toe of Italy. And it's really beautiful because we're right along the coast. And so it's perfect during the summertime. During the winter, it can be quite stormy. <laughs> but what we do is help educate and reconnect people with olive oil, specifically extra virgin olive oil, because that's what we produce. And we help consumers understand what it is and what it isn't. It's so fascinating, Skylar. And honestly, you're living the dream life with your time in Italy and now, and then also in the US. Like, oh my goodness. I say it's not possible, but, you know, we choose to challenge that one. So I can't wait to dive deeper into your work and your business. But before we do, I'd like to start with a question I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? So I'm from Oakland, California, and it's a city outside just across the bay from San Francisco. And it's predominantly black city. We have a very high population of black people there, um, which was incredible growing up because there's just so much diversity. But I think being from Oakland has really impacted me and influenced me the most because there's just such a diverse group of people there. There's there's people from everywhere. You have immigrants from all over the world. And then you have um, the influence from the tech industry and you have a really strong food culture. It's a hodgepodge. But the other side of that is that we got a lot of gentrification and maybe not like the as bright or sh- bright or shiny part of that as we had a lot of gentrification in the city of Oakland, people moving out of San Francisco, kind of like getting away from the city that has priced a lot of people out. But then those people are pricing out a lot of black people, Asian people, um, Mexican people, because there's a very high Mexican um, population in Oakland and kind of m- pushing them out of their neighborhoods. And so being from a city that has it's that's complex, right? There's so much going on there. And I think that that has really heavily impacted my view of the world. And it just created, it made me very well-rounded, but it also made me very hyper aware of my surroundings. It's so fascinating. I think, you know, growing up in a place where there's so much diversity and you kind of, you almost feel like that's the norm. Like this must be how the world is like, you know, we're all embracing each other, et cetera, et cetera. You know, how do you think that shaped you as a teen and then kind of heading into college and whatnot? You know, do you think that had an impact on you at that time or was it more later on that you, looking back now, that you think, oh, okay, yep, I see what I gained from that time? I think it's impacted me heavily throughout high school, into university, into my early 20s because also the Bay Area, we live in a bubble. Like we, we forget in Northern California, people from the Bay Area, we forget that we live in this bubble and it's very liberal, 
like everyone's Democrat, everyone's very left, very blue. And I, <laughs> I'm going to admit this, it's so embarrassing. I had it like when I was in high school, I'm not even kidding. I like didn't even, I had never met a Republican face to face. I swear I did not. I was like, those people, may, they don't exist. But I was 16 years old, right? Like I, <laughs> and then I went to, <laughs> Wait, how would you know? <laughs> I went to Arizona for college in Tempe, Arizona in Arizona has been a very historically um, conservative state. And so I went to a place that was the complete opposite of where I'm from. And to meet the people there, I was like, oh, my God, you are real. Like, you exist. <laughs> and it was a culture shock for both of us because we were coming. They hadn't met people like me. I hadn't met people like them. And there was not a very large population of Black people and the Latino culture, they, the Latinos, they just kind of like kept to themselves. And so I didn't feel like, um, everyone was kind of like mixing together like they were in the Bay Area. So it was, I was a huge, huge culture shock. And then after that experience, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. within your own country, it's fascinating. I <laughs> and then after that, to go to Europe and live in Spain, it was also a culture shock in a good way because I had never met, um, in Europe, their culture is so old, deeply rooted. And it's something that I didn't really have in California because it is a newer place. So I, I didn't feel like my roots were extremely deep, if that makes sense. I didn't feel like I, I, I can't tell you who my great, great, great grandfather was like, that's not something I do not have that information. And there's some other things happening there that we won't get into right now. But my husband can tell me who his great, 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 great grandfather was like, he has all of that history. And he's Italian. But also when I moved to Spain, it's the same thing. Like people know where they came from. And that history is kind of charted. It's, um, important in their family and people talk about it where I'm from. Like, that's not, you don't really talk. You don't go back that far. You're like, my grandfather was from California. So I'm from California. Like, that's it. It's so true though. And it's so, it's so similar in Oz here in Australia. You, you just, you know, unless you're kind of, a, even when you are native, you know, obviously that's a different story, but if you're like the majority of us who've, whose parents clearly came here or whose grandparents migrated here or whose you know, great, great grandparents, whatever it is, you don't really know. How do you think that shapes us when we don't really have much of a connection to the land or, or we kind of just do feel like we're new to this place, you know, versus, oh my goodness, I know everyone or my great, 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 great grandfather, knowing, you know, understand and know who's na his name and who he was. How do you think that shapes us? I think that's responsible for like all of our quarter life crises. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> we turn 24, 25 and we're like, who are we and what am I going to do? Because it just, you feel untethered. You feel detached. You feel like you're missing this history. An example. So my great grandmother was from Jamaica and she was mixed. She was definitely definitely part white because she had gray eyes bright red hair like 
I'm talking like bright red, like Irish hair, but it had that like African curl to it. So she was also part black, but we don't know if she was like three quarters white, a quarter black. We don't know that because, we, you know, they didn't keep records. And she married, she was also very light skinned and she married a Jamaican man and they moved to Panama so he could work on the Panama Canal. And then they had children there, my grandmother included and her siblings. And then they moved to the U.S. So technically, my grandmother had a Panamanian passport and technically she was Panamanian. But the cultures and the things that she did and the food that her and her family cooked were Jamaican. Like I went back to Panama a couple of years ago to look and I was looking for like all the foods that my grandmother would make. And they didn't exist there. And the reason they didn't exist is because it's from the Jamaican, the Jamaicans that went to Panama that settled there, that works there. And then they went off to other places in the world. Of course, there still are a lot of um, Jamaican and black people in Central America, but you know, a lot of them, they moved through and then they went to other places, my family included. And then my grandfather on my mother's side. So my, my grandma's husband was Native American and black from Alabama. And he was Chakta, which is they're from Oklahoma. So then you have that other fusion and they get together, they have kids. And so then you have these like Jamaican, Native American, black, <laughs> African, African American babies. There's <laughs> just like a lot going on there. <laughs> and so then I have, and then my mom is dark skinned black mm. woman and she grew up speaking Spanish. And the kids like in San Francisco during that time were so confused by her. They're mm. like, yeah. what's happening? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> and then she married a white man from California, like born and raised there his whole life. And she was born and raised in San Francisco. And so for me growing up, like I knew that, okay, that side of my family is white. And then I have the other side of the family that is black, Panamanian, Jamaican. But I had an identity crisis like a couple of years ago. I was like, what, who am I? How do I, can somebody please get me like a, a book that has my whole family history in this? Because I'm confused. I need, I would like details. Isn't it so interesting how this happens? You know, we we just kind of go along our merry way when we're younger and we kind of accept it for what it is. And then we get to our mid-20s and we think, hold up, what am I, who am I, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And we have that quarter-life crisis. I'm sure so many of our peers out there can resonate. I mean, I went through it. I mean, so many of us listening, I'm sure went through it. How do we navigate through that time? What was that time like for you? How did you even come out of it or how did you navigate through it? I have really incredible friends. I have the best friends who have, I don't know how I have such great friends. They have such incredible insight. I'm so lucky. <laughs> and I just will get really real with each other. Like I'm not afraid of being vulnerable and just expressing myself to people and saying like, I don't know what's happening. I feel really uncomfortable with this. I'm feeling, this makes me feel very unsettled and I need you. Can you please help me work through this? And also my friends are from a lot of different uh, backgrounds. I have a friend who's Puerto Rican and Indian 
and we get into it. We dive (laughs) so deep into our conversation, into conversations about who we are and what our background mean to us, um, where our family comes from. Cause she also had, has family members that, um, came to the U S through different countries, like from India to Greece to New York. (laughs) And so, yeah, we have these conversations and it's just very, it's comforting to hear this from someone else because you know that you're both kind of working through it and then you can just kind of work through those emotions and it's okay to not have an answer. That's the other thing. It's okay to have those feelings that make you feel um, unsettled or you don't feel like you're 100% have an answer. Like that's not expected of you. And I used to think that was expected of me. I used to think that when people asked you like, Skylar, who are you? Or like, what are you? I had to give them this exact answer. And like, I don't, cause I don't owe anybody anything. So true. Why do you think we feel like we have to always know and we have to be on it and we have to give the right answer? Honestly, I don't know. It bothers me. I'm still working on that. Let me know if you have an answer. I feel that's something that's often expected of black women, especially. And uh, a friend brought that up to me recently. She was like, you don't need to have all the answers. Like this is not for you to fix or do or provide. You should just live your life right now and be happy and do the best you can. And that's what I've been doing. And oh, you've been doing it well. Oh my goodness. So we want to dive a bit deeper into the story, you know, so you moved to Arizona, you went to Arizona State and you studied architecture and it was that big culture shock within the, you know, within your own country, but the big culture shock, mixing of the two. And, you know, you, you did that for, I think about four years. Talk to us a little bit about that time there and then the desire to, you know, obviously head out into the working world. And I think you moved back to San Fran area um, to, to, to work at an architecture firm. Talk to us a little bit about how you think your college days and then those early years in the working world shaped you. So Arizona State, it gets a bad rep because it's a party school. And everyone's like, oh, you're going to Tempe. You're just going to go party. And I was like, that is part of college. That is a part of it. But also when you go to architecture school, you design school is just tough. Like all the architecture students out there, I feel you. I have been there. It's an incredible background to have, no matter if you design, if you decide to become an architect or not. Design is all about problem solving. That is what it is. At its core, it's problem solving. And we, Arizona State has incredible professors they have a huge budget. And so they're able to pull in professors from all over the world. So I had professors from Argentina, Chile, Spain, Italy, Mexico, China, all over the world. It was, I'm so grateful to Arizona State for being able to do that for me because it helped me be able to dream to go to other places because I saw so many people there. And so I, it was like a, a really big inspiration. Like I can go anywhere, I can do anything. And I just have to keep going and working towards that. And I'm staying very curious. They, because the professors were from other places, I was very interested in travel. I wanted to know where they were from, the architecture styles that they grew up with. Because me being from California, 
and my family having been in the development industry, I was very familiar with like wood construction, um, which is ideal for earthquakes. Going to Arizona, they don't have earthquakes. And so they use a lot of like masonry blocks. There's a ton of concrete that you don't really build with a ton of concrete in California unless you're doing commercial designs. That doesn't happen. That does not happen with residential. And so to hear, to see that difference and just a state away from me, from California, and then to also have these professors from all these different places and having, hearing their experiences growing up in these different countries with the different building styles, it really helped shape me. And I, like I said, I asked them tons of questions and which I think that they enjoyed. I hope that they enjoyed because I'm a very curious person <laughs> and I'm not very shy. And I just played a lot in studio because when you're in studio, you're there for, I think what, six hours twice a week is how long our studios are. And you just go there and you work and you sit with your professors, you sit with all of the other architecture students. It was only 12 people per studio. So having 12 hours a week in a room with the same people going over your design ideas and arguing about architecture helps you <laughs> become a really good problem solver once they start to put very strict parameters on you. And so for me, it was like a, like Tetris. That's how I thought of it. It was so much fun to just be like, okay, well, we can't do that. We have to do that. We can't put that there. We have to put that other thing there and just shifting things around and always knowing that there's a solution, but you have to move things in order to get there. And so that helped me immensely when I wanted to create the brand. And when I was built, when I was thinking about building a brand, because the other thing about Arizona State's architecture program, and sorry, I know that I, I do not, I am not paid by them to give you this information right now. I just like, <laughs> this is not, not sponsored. sponsored okay? It's okay. It's just like, it helped me so much. And I'm really grateful for this education. <laughs> Um, when you're giving your presentation, um, you had to present it in this form where everything had to be equally branded. So you couldn't have like your font be one style for your presentation that did not match your building. And so it was almost like all, uh, you were getting a degree laterally to architecture and branding, which bleeds over into marketing. Because buildings are the marketing tools for architects. That's their pamphlet. <laughs> you know, the thing that's crappy about architecture is that you can't just be like, here is my, you can look at my work in PDF. I mean, you can send people pictures, but if you want someone to actually experience your work, they have to go there, which limits the amount of people that, that can actually experience good architecture, which is one of the reasons I exited the industry because that wasn't going to work for me. I couldn't have people having to go to my buildings in order to experience the way that I wanted to creatively express myself. It's so, so interesting, Skylar. And I think, you know, so I love that you just got taught to think and problem solve at school and really kind of dived so much deep. And I think so many of us do in college. What I find interesting is that you distinctly knew why you wanted to leave that industry or not pursue it any longer. For those of us who are currently, you know, we've studied for four or five years and now we're finally in those, you know, grad jobs and, and, and leadership roles and whatnot. And we feel like something's just not right, but we can't pinpoint it like you could. What advice would you give to us around 
identifying and figuring out why it is that perhaps the career path we're on doesn't feel right. You have to problem solve. (laughs) You got to get creative and problem solve because there's something that's not clicking and that's fine. Like that is fine. The reason, one of the reasons I left the architecture firm that I was at at the time is that it was too small. There was no space for me to grow. And I could see that vertically there was no space for me because there was like no one below me and the person above me, there was like one of them. And I was like, well, I'm going to be stuck here forever. So this is not going to work for me because that's not how I am. (laughs) I need to move (laughs) and sideways is not going to be it. So I knew I had to leave. And so if that, I think there's a couple things there. Like if you're happy with the direction that your career could potentially move in, maybe it's time to go somewhere else. And that, that specific workplace just isn't for you. That's one thing. But if you really feel like the work that you're doing isn't good, that's another thing. And it might be time to exit that space. But before you exit, like, don't just be like, I hate this. I'm quitting. Goodbye. That's not, that's not how you do it. You want to ease out no matter. I feel like there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are like, well, I just had this wild idea and then I did it and then it took off. And it's like, that's great, but that's not everybody. Like most people side hustles, like when they become successful, you know, when their businesses grow, like it starts as a side hustle and they have to kind of ease in. You don't just launch and then the next day you're super successful. And so if you're looking to get out of a certain industry, ease out slowly and while you're easing out talk to people i i talk to over a hundred people easily about just like me exiting the design industry and i didn't know what i wanted to go into i think i wanted i wanted to go into some sort of marketing but then i was like you know what i really also hate having a boss i'm not a good employee i'm a terrible employee i'm a wonderful i'm fantastic at- i hear you, I hear you. <laughs> I'm really good at consulting. I'm really good at talking. I'm really good at other like branding stuff with dealing with a boss. I'm not, I'm not a good employee. When you figure that out that, you know, you're just not a good employee and that's just not going to happen for you or, you you know, hopefully it wouldn't. What were the next things that you did? You know, I, I think I saw that. You started the company, so I think it was December 2017, but you, as you mentioned, you were still working full time during, I think for the first year or two or something like that, you know, you were still working full time. How did you, when you figured, when you realized you didn't want to kind of have, you wanted to be your own boss and you wanted to exit this industry, where did the idea for Excel kind of come about and how did you manage to juggle the two during that time? So I'm my husband, Giuseppe, who's the co-founder of Exile, suggested in like 2016 that we start an olive oil company. And this was before I had left my job in architecture. And I said, no, because that sounded like a terrible idea to me at the time. Because I'm, <laughs> how do I know about farming? <laughs> like, yeah, I grew up near wine country, but like, I don't know anything about it. And <laughs> he just planted a little seed. And as time moved on, I thought maybe I can figure out if I would even like that. So that this is the time when I was questioning my time in the design industry. And I asked a friend, Shauna, who is a co-founder of a winery and the head winemaker at a winery in the Bay Area, if I could work under her in the cellar for harvest. And she said, yes, come work for me. 
And so that is when I knew, okay, I can leave the architecture industry, explore this other thing because I have somewhere to go. So see, I didn't just like flat out leave and not have a place to go. I had a plan. I had a place where I was going to go and experience it. And if I hated it, fine, I would go back to architecture. But I knew I had to do it because I was getting to a place just mentally where it wasn't going to work for me anymore. But I couldn't leave 100% until I had, you know, a safe place. And so I ended up liking, loving the job. <clears throat> and I, I didn't want to make wine forever. It wasn't that I was obsessed with making wine. It was I was obsessed with the energy of harvest and the energy that there was this feeling. It felt like very magical. We're creating this thing and people are going to consume it and they're going to have it in their house, in their home, in their hands, sharing it with other people. And I just loved the celebration of like a good bottle of wine. It felt very special and intimate to me. And so I told Giuseppe, yes, I want to do this, but like we have to have a plan. And I still didn't leave work full time. I still went and I did freelance design work and 3D modeling for other people. So I still wasn't out of it 100%. We started XL in 2017 when we moved back to his hometown of La Castella in Calabria. And we harvested, we went through the entire process of producing oil ourselves. And we we just we had to do everything that was one condition i was like if we're gonna do this we have to do everything ourselves i don't want to have someone else basically doing anything for us because we need to figure out if this is something we can do and if we're good at it and we have to see if and how many people will buy it we knew people would buy it we didn't know how many it was mostly like our friends and family (laughs) that wanted oil at the time I love your approach to it all. I think, you know, there's so much out there that's like, if you're not happy with this, go leave your job now and never look back. You know, I think I love your approach to just kind of that one step at a time. You know, I guess my question is when you were in that exploration phase and you're in that, okay, let's test this, let's test that, or, you know, now we're in Italy and we're trying to see if we even want this. How do you maintain that level of balance? You know, you're still doing your freelancing or you're still doing something to bring in the, the, you know, the money, but then you're also exploring this other creative thing. You know, how do we find that balance between the two during that time of exploration? There's not balance. Just know if you're going to start a business there, you're not, you're going to have at least five years of imbalance. I'm barely, barely getting to a place where I'm, can finally see the light of balance. And it's been four harvests. I've, I've worked full time for four years now. And that's just how it is when you start a business. It's crappy, but this is, this is, let me be more specific. This is how it is when you don't have investors in your business. And even the people that I know that do have investors still pretty much all of them work like this because it's just getting things off the ground. It's what it takes to get to a place where you're able to be like, okay, I can breathe now. The first five years are chaos. And I don't, I don't like that culture. Like I'm not a celebrator of I'm working so hard. I work 24 seven. Like I would love to switch to a five hour work day. That sounds fine to me. I don't see why I should (laughs) (laughs) have to work more than that, but that's not going to happen right now. Like this is not going to happen. I'm sorry, but I don't think that that's realistic unfortunately. But it's easier if you have a business partner because if there's two of you instead of just one of you, you're able to spread out tasks and things. 
You guys can't see me, but I'm furiously nodding at Skylar because I'm also in the first five <laughs> years and, oh my goodness, you know, it's a lot. Talk to us a little bit about how we can keep going when we, you know, that instant gratification isn't there. How do we stay motivated through this journey of chaos, especially in those first five years? I love this question because it's something that I struggled with in the beginning. Like when we barely had, I remember there was a time when we had like a hundred dollars of e-commerce sales a month when we were doing, cause we were doing in-person events and like people weren't buying our products online. And they'd be like, where can I buy your products? Like what local stores would carry it? And I'm like, well, local grocery stores won't even pick us up, but you can order on our website. And <laughs> so, and we would ship people their oils. Um, <laughs> but I just think that the, what kept me going was catering to the people that we had. It didn't matter who we didn't have. There's, millions. I mean, in the US, we're over 300 million people, right? I can get some of those people to be our customers. <laughs> some of them will become our customers. Like I think there, there's a market there for olive oil. And there's a lot of people that love Italian olive oil in the US. And so I guess those two extremes of like focusing on the pe- the clients and the customers we already have. And then also knowing that there's a huge group of people that are going to be interested in our product. You just have to be patient and keep moving forward. And also if you have a really good product um, and you're in the food space, people share it. People love to share things that they love. And if you ask customers to share things, they'll share it if they enjoy it, but they have to think it's worth sharing. And so our emphasis and focus has always, always, always been on creating incredible products first. And then we can talk about how we're going to market it. But if we have a crappy product, there's no point in marketing it because like, I don't really want to sell it. (laughs) Fair enough. And oh my goodness, even on your you know, even looking at your website and, and, and whatnot, it just feels so intimate. I don't know how to explain it. Like, I feel so personally connected to this <laughs> olive oil, even though I've never had any. You know, how can we create that kind of, add that personal touch to what we're doing? And I guess not be afraid to to share all of us. Like on your website, you've got you and your husband and you can really feel the energy of like, this is a family thing that we're doing and it's very close to us. How can we get comfortable with putting our whole selves out there when we're starting something new? You have to be vulnerable. You have to be vulnerable. That means getting your feelings hurt. It means you're opening yourself up to rejection, which if you're going to start your own business, you're going to hear no for like five years. So that should be (laughs) the no's now. I'm just like, whoop, they go right over my head. I'm like, okay, thank you, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) But being vulnerable allows people to connect with you more, right? You want, you feel closer to them. So I don't have an issue with being vulnerable. It's something that's very personal to me. And also to Giuseppe, and we've never had an issue with that. And so people, when they taste our oils, they're like, it's, it's so funny. Some people are like, your oil's good. It's really good, but I'm buying this because I like you. And I'm like, that's fine. Like <laughs> you can do, you can have yeah, both. Good with like that. It's, it's fine. <laughs> and also just kind of, we, 
I think the other thing about XL and our us and our brand is that we're pulling back the curtain on an industry that has had these kind of walls, formidable walls in front of it. It's you think of olive oil, you think of all the big brands globally, the brands that are distributing globally through these huge distributors that you're seeing in grocery stores all across the world, whether you're in um, Wyoming or Australia, there's brands that have a reach like that. And while there's nothing wrong with that, it just feels so commercialized. It feels so industrial and it doesn't feel intimate at all. And Italian food is really about high quality, using the best things that you can that are accessible to you. And that's what we want people to have, the best that they can have. And if that's our olive oil, awesome. If it's not, that's fine. But we still recommend you should use good oil. And that's the other thing. It's not about like us trying to compete with other Italian olive oil brands. Because I think there are a lot of brands that are like, we're competing, we're competing. It's a race for us to get to the finish line. But what I don't even know what the finish line is. But it's you know, it's a race for us to like beat you. And I'm like, okay, you can beat me. Like, I don't, good for you. <laughs> I don't view it like that. I think that... um we should consume really wonderful foods and the best foods that we can afford to purchase and also that are accessible to us. And I think another part of um, why Exile is so special is that we are 100% produced, all of our oils are 100% produced in Calabria within like 25 kilometers of the sea. And Calabria is um, a region in Italy that's a, it's a second largest olive oil producing region in the country. And so Puglia is number one, then it's Calabria, and then I think it's uh, Sicily. And South Italy actually produces 84% of all of Italy's olive oil. So to be part of this agriculture powerhouse that doesn't really get a lot of recognition is also very special. And Calabria is also the poorest region in Italy. So there's all these layers to it that we touch on, not usually at the same time, because it's a lot of information and we can get really nerdy about the specifics with olive oil, but there's layers and we're pulling back the layers. Like, okay, so here's what's happening here. Italy might look like this country where everything's pretty and wonderful and they have so many tourists and I don't know, maybe small businesses, they have like money coming out of their ears because they're, they have all these tourists and they're <laughs> building all this wealth. But like, it's not down, it's not like that down here. There's, um, some very, <sighs> the poverty that I've seen here is intense. It's very intense. And so that is something that I often think about when we're creating, producing our oils and we're keeping all of we're purchasing from our vendors who are a hundred percent in Calabria, by the way. So like every single bottle and every single piece of equipment, everything we do is purchased from here and making sure that we're just like reinvesting our money in the region because that's important to us. We want Calabria to grow and be prosper financially and, you know, just help taking care of your community. And it's a part of the world that has adopted me. <laughs> I feel very much at home here, like, which is incredible. So. <laughs> I was just going to say, I was like, you speak as if you're from there. And I mean, in some respects, you kind of like through your husband, you kind of are. But it, it's so interesting how 
we can dive into a space and just feel like it's a part of us. Throughout this journey, at what point do you feel like that tipping point happened where you really felt like this business, this brand, this place became a part of you? Probably. Well, I always knew it was an extension. Like first harvest, I knew that this was going to be like an arm. (laughs) (laughs) And I felt very attached to the brand. But I think that after we won the silver for one of the best olive oils in the world in 2018 at the New York International Olive Oil Competition, that was the first time I knew like, this is like, I, I, this is it. Like, I know that this is my thing. This is our thing. And then after, of course, the last year, it has just solidified that and been like, this is the thing I was meant to do. So amazing. What advice would you have for our peers out there listening who really feel like they have yet to find their thing? They're feeling discouraged. You know, the last year is just so tough on all of us. What would you say to them? And like, what are maybe the top three tips that you give them on trying to help us figure out what our thing is? Well, there's no rush. First off, there's no rush to find your thing. There is we live in such rushy times. That's something that I appreciate about being in such a slow part of Italy. Cause Calabria is like way slower. Like you think Italy's slow, like come down here. You either get things done tomorrow or they don't happen for six months. And so we live in like such a rushy, rushy time. Everything has to go so fast. We have to push, push, push and go, go, go and move, move, move. And we don't find things when we're rushed. We find and explore things in our leisurely time because we're relaxed and calm. And so I would say that do that for us. Take time to yourself to explore and find things that you enjoy doing, things that you're drawn towards. And even if it might, you might feel drawn towards things that are like a waste of time or you think like I can't turn this into a career it's giving your, yourself space to play and the goal is not to find the thing that you're going to do tomorrow because that's not going to happen it's about giving your self time to relax enough to find what you want to do and you'll naturally come into it but do not rush it that is the absolute worst thing you can do like lists and spreadsheets and pros and cons I'm very type a personality I love a good spreadsheet. Like, don't get me wrong. I love a spreadsheet. It is not the place <laughs> to figure out what you're supposed to do with your life. It's the good place if you're trying to calculating like shipping rates or, like, <laughs> you know, budgeting. <laughs> budgeting. They fantastic. That's not where <laughs> your career path lives. So that's like my number one piece of advice. Mm. Number two, something that um, I heard Sarah Blakely say. When you have an idea, don't talk to anyone about it. And if you do talk to someone about it, make sure they're not people that are too close to you. Because if you tell someone that's very close to you an idea, like if you're going to start a new business and they think it's a bad idea, part of their concern or fear is that you're going to fail and they have your safety. That's at the forefront of their mind. It's not like, Oh, let's explore this wonderful idea and let's go start a brainstorming session. That is not at the front of their mind. They're thinking, if she falls, I have to catch her. And so that's why, like, when we were starting our olive oil business, people kept telling us, like, that's not going to take off. That's not going to do well. Do you know how hard it is to sell food? Do you know how low the profit margins are? And I was like, we don't want to do the things that you're doing. 
Like we, this is the, our business model and the way that we're doing things is not traditional. If we were doing things traditionally, I would have landed flat on my face. Like the people had told me, but that, that's not it. And so I'm really happy that I didn't listen to those people. And I'm happy I stopped talking to them about my ideas because the second I started talking to people that didn't care if I just ate it, like those are the people you should talk to, the people who do not care if you fail and lose all your money. Talk to them. Yeah. <laughs> talk to those people because they'll be like, yeah, that's okay. You should do X, Y, and Z. I have a friend actually who you can talk to. Like they'll make fantastic recommendations. They will help you. Other entrepreneurs will help you. But yeah, don't like, I wouldn't tell my mom or my mm. sister or like, you know, someone who, a grandma, like that's the worst person you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> right? Don't do that. I don't know if I have a third piece of advice. Just, just give yourself time. Giving time. It's so hard though. We want, you know, everything to happen yesterday and it's so tough. And, but I, 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 I really couldn't agree more as much as like, we have to just hang in there. We really do. Well, from 2015 to 2018, yeah, th- those were years that I was just kind of like, I don't know what exactly I'm supposed to do. That's three years and that's nothing. Some people, it's like, it took them 15 years and you can't forget about that because it's not, who's going to penalize you? Like, that's what I want. Are you going to get a ticket for not having a good, like, I'm about to get fined right now for not having a good idea (laughs) and making my business. Like who? No. Oh my goodness, Skylar. We could talk for days. I'm absolutely loving this, but I am conscious of your time. And I know it's a crazy hour there in Italy. So I've got a couple final questions for you. And the first one is, what has been your greatest failure personally throughout this entrepreneurial journey to date? (laughs) I do not even have, I have so many. Oh my God. Okay. Personal, I have to think about that. How do I fail? I fail all the time. I still fail. I still, I fail every single day, like badly, like eat it, fall on my face. And it's fine. Cause that's like part of this journey, but I've failed so many times. Um, I think with just like fulfillment and logistics things, um, when things started picking up and underestimating like the time and energy that would go into that, cause that's a huge part of like when you're an e-commerce business, you need other people to help you to do things. And Giuseppe and I both have serious, just like attachment to our products and our brand. And the idea of having someone else handle it is just like what our nightmares are made of because (laughs) we like rap very specifically, you know, we have all these things like we're obsessed because we're obsessed with our oils and our bottles and we put so much work into making sure that they're pristine when we pack them here in Italy. And so that entire process, I would say we hung on to that piece of our business for way too long. And my friend who owns a very successful spice company was like, Skylar, you need to let it go. You need to let it go. You need to let it go. And I was like, I ain't letting nothing go. (laughs) (laughs) You can't make me. I should have let it go. Like she was right. I should have done it like 
months before we let that piece go. And that is just one thing that would have made my life a lot easier and less stressful because the early, like the sooner you start working with vendors and people on specific things, it makes it easier to scale. They have more time to implement the systems that you want into place. And then when you're messing up and it's with like a handful of orders, that's much better than when you're messing up and it's like thousands of orders, right? So mess up earlier, (laughs) frequently (laughs) early. And then once you get going, yeah. But that's one of just like, I have so, we don't have time. Like here in Italy, like being in (laughs) South Italy, trying to run an export company and produce oil is just a recipe for disaster and chaos. (laughs) I can only imagine. Oh my goodness. Oh, I love it, Skylar. Skylar, over the last, you know, three and a half years in business and then, you know, you're still in that five year, perhaps almost four years now, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work and amongst all of, you know, the daily failures, you've also, you know, been featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Your company has been featured in so many publications. I couldn't even write them all down. It was like Condé Nast, Bon Appetit, New York Mag, Food and Wine, to name a few. And your amazing oil was even named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oh my goodness. So amazing. What are three key pieces of advice that you give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? Nail down your brand statement. And I should probably still take my own advice and nail it down better. Because people ask me and I'm like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm an olive oil producer. Because it feels so organic to me. Just that I, I make oil and I sell it. Like that's what I do. Of course, we have this wonderful, incredible brand. But at the core of me, that's what Excel is. Like, that's how I'm an olive oil producer and I sell olive oil. That's how I see myself. And that's what I love doing most. But having a very strong vision for your brand, um, including your brand statement and your brand identity is number one. If you do not have that down, people will not trust you. I guarantee you the public will not trust you. They will be like, mm, these things seem inconsistent. I'm not into it. So I'm talking your social media, your website, your copy, every single thing needs to be a reflection of each other. It doesn't have to necessarily be copied and pasted across every single different platform and every single thing. It needs to be related. Okay. So like cousins that live in the same house, (laughs) same language, everything needs to just be consistent. Like do not get your branding down pat. It can be the simplest thing. It can be two colors. And it can be the simplest logo ever, but just make sure it's consistent because I promise you people and the publications, the journals won't trust you. They'll just be like, this is not consistent. I don't think that this is going to stand up. And then I guess my next piece of advice, I have to think on this longer. I'm not good at like lists of questions. <laughs> 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 um, it's also like almost 11 p.m. So that's probably not helping. You know? <laughs> it's a little bit late for me. That's my number one piece of advice. And then my second piece of advice is if you're able to get a publicist, get one. If you can't, there is a lot of 
places to go where you can get resources for um, understanding how journalists work, but really to get them to like respond and listen to you, it's best to have a publicist, people that they trust. That industry is weird because I'm not part of it. So for me, I'm just like that industry is weird and super foreign. And I admire the work that publicists and journalists do, but it's, they all know each other. And so unless you have a rapport with journalists, publicists already, it's going to be difficult to get your name into those publications because they just don't know who you are and they get so many emails and so many things coming at them. It's really hard to get your foot in the door. It was next to impossible before we were able to like work with our publicists and really have things moving forward. And next, just keep repeating your message, which goes back into the branding. Things might seem redundant for you because you're in it every single day, but it's not redundant for the public. It's not redundant for your customers because they're not seeing you every single day. Even if you post very similar content on social media regularly, they're seeing so much other content. And I struggle with this still of, well, I feel like I just shared that. or I feel like I just did that. And just stuff is like, we have to do something new. And then I talk to our customers or I talk to like today, I talked to um, a contractor who I'm really excited to potentially work with. And she's like, your social media looks great. And you cover such a broad array of topics. And I'm like, what? I feel like I've posted the same pasta recipe six times in the past two weeks. But that's me. That's me. It's not other people because they're seeing so much other information. So just think about when you go to maybe your favorite bloggers, Instagram, or to your favorite brands, Instagram, and what you see there. And of course, Instagram is not the only platform. I guess that's my fourth piece of advice. You can branch out into other platforms and see what works for you. But we're mainly on Instagram for the time being. But experiment. There's so many other platforms out there. Experiment. Yeah. I absolutely love it, Skylar. Oh, my goodness. Look, as we start to wrap up, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing for showing us and particularly us, you know, women of color and young females that we can go out there and make a change. We don't have to stay stuck in something we don't want to do and that it's possible to kind of um, do something that's close to us. And for that, we really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Of course. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, and that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Waking up and feeling full. I love it. Oh my goodness, Skylar. It's been so amazing. You're absolutely incredible and we so appreciate you. Where can we learn more about you and XL? Uh, you can go to our website and pre-order. If you're in the US, I'm so sorry we're not shipping to Australia yet. We got to work. We're working on that. Um, but you can check us out on xaoliveoil.com. So that's E-X-A-U oliveoil.com. You can follow us on Instagram, xaoliveoil. We're on Facebook, Twitter at the same handle. And also we're on TikTok now, but your girl is still learning. The, I'm... <laughs> Your girl's still learning the TikTok. Still learning the shake. The TikTok. (laughs) There's so many things happening. I I just can't keep up. Thank you so much, Skylar. It's been so awesome. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. 
Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest beer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>